Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. But today we are in week five of our Journey to Jerusalem sermon series, which is one of our mini-series as we take a year to go through the book of Mark. And today we're going to be at the end of chapter nine, you guys. And uh, just as a little precursor to this, as I was looking at the sermon schedule and I saw when my surgery came in and then they postponed it a week and I saw what I was coming back to preach on my first two weeks back, um, I, was, I was excited in a weird way because these are a couple scriptures uh, that can be misunderstood. There's just the, the phrases and some of the way that things are explained are just hard to grasp when we just read through them, or at least hard to grasp in an appropriate fashion. So I'm excited to get to unpack these with you guys here today. This one's a little meaty. You got to kind of nerd out on a little bit of theology to understand what's being said, but you guys usually like that. So we'll do some of that. We'll get a little bit of preach on. We'll get some application of what this means for us, and hopefully it'll be all packaged up and for Jess with a nice bow on it put under the tree So, because she's excited about Christmas. Um, I will note that I already got asked, what time is that Christmas party? We are actually going to add times as we need for capacity. So we're going to have one. As that books up, we'll just keep adding them because we want to make sure everybody gets the opportunity to do that. And so there will be multiple times. More of that information will come out from Casey in that email. Sound good? Perfect. So today's sermon title is The Journey to Jerusalem. Stay salty. And not stay salty like, you know, the negative connotation of being salty, um, but just stay salty in what the scriptures mean when it says that, uh, talks about saltiness and how salt is a positive attribute of a disciple of Jesus. And in the scripture this week, <clears throat> Jesus is again addressing this theme of discipleship with his followers. And this time, he gives a very serious or stern, if you will, warning about the things in the life of a follower that would cause others to stumble, causing others to stumble. So not just, hey, manage your own morals and get your stuff together, but how do we care for, show compassion, and orient the lifestyle that we live out in a way that would show care and grace and preservation for those around us. And he addresses this with his disciples he talks about some things that are to be avoided or removed from one's life. And the extent to which Christ illustrates that one must go in pursuit of this seems quite drastic when you just read through these scriptures, which you'll see here in a second. But then again, Jesus is no stranger to going great lengths to overcome the power of sin in the lives of others. Amen? So he may call us to go to great lengths to overcome this power in our lives and the lives of others, but he does that from a place of paying the ultimate price for sin to be overcome in our lives. And so in this, in this call that he gives us, we get to identify more deeply with him. And I consider it a privilege, and I pray that by the end of this message, you will do the same. So I believe in that there's something that we need to learn in this scripture day, something that we need to take from it. So let's start off by reading it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. And listen to this through the context of staying salty. If anyone causes one of these little ones 
those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Good start. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that this speaks to us in our context today just as much as it did to those who originally received this teaching from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear and receive what you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Anyone ever read through that before and do that like, okay, moving on, and you just go to the next one? And then no surprise, you get to chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and it's about divorce, and so you're like, okay, I'll just, you ever do that, and you're like, oh, that's uncomfortable, and I'm just going to keep going until there's something that really encourages my soul. You guys ever read the Bible like that? I, I still do sometimes. I don't like to admit that. And I try really hard, especially if I'm prepping a sermon, not to read it like that. But nevertheless, we can tend to do that because there's things in here that make us uncomfortable. And it, the cross and the fact that we are, are, are originally from birth, like, infiltrated with sin and that we need Jesus to come save us because we're not worthy of ruling our own lives should make you a little uncomfortable. Like that should be like a hard thing to grasp. Like, hey, as much as you think you're great, you're not that awesome and you need Jesus. Like some people in their pride don't want to hear that. And so there are things in the Bible that are meant to, to be challenging, but there are also things that are unnecessarily challenging because we just don't understand them. And I'm sure that there's plenty of those for us every time that I go through a new book and study through commentaries. Like, oh, wish I would have known that five years ago. Wish I would have known that when we first planted this church, right? Like things just continue to unfold and unpack for us as we get in the living word. And I believe today's scripture is one of those that uh, is more unnecessarily challenging because we don't often understand it in the proper context or what is being said. So the goal today is to shed some light and understanding on that and see what it means for us. How are we supposed to live out of a proper understanding of this? So what we're going to do, like many times in this Mark series, is we're going to go through and we're going to clarify some of this stuff. And some of it's going to be kind of rapid fire, like here's what it means when he's saying this, and some of it will have some illustrations, but we're going to go through and we're going to understand the context of what is being said and why it's being said. And then I believe this week, those last two verses, especially verse 50, Jesus just naturally gives us that application point. And so as we unpack it, we're going to see, as he summarizes this, how we are called to live. So first of all, you may have heard this 
excerpt of scripture and be like, oh, this is about not leading little kids astray. Don't cause the little children to stumble. Don't cause the little ones to stumble. But right away it says the little ones, those who believe in me in, in the scripture. So are the little ones like the kids? Am I supposed to not lead my kids astray? Well, like, yeah, if you're a good dad, that's part of your job. But this is the little ones, not literally children, but those who believe in and follow Jesus. Like right off the bat, first half a sentence. That's who he's talking about here. Those who believe in and follow Jesus. And then causing to stumble is anything that would compromise the faith of another believer. Whether that's temptation that leads to sin or false teaching that distorts belief. So right off the bat, it's like, hey, do not cause those who believe in me, who follow me, to compromise their faith, leading into temptation that would cause them to sin or distorting their belief. Other translations and older versions of the NIV translate this part more narrowly or more acutely, and it just says, don't cause them to sin. But cause to sin doesn't fully encompass the original meaning that's trying to be communicated here. It's another one of those parts of the Bible where Jesus' teaching actually takes like personal responsibility and obeying the law and what it means to live out a life that honors God to the next level. It enhances or raises the bar or the standard of living a life that brings honor to him. And this is illustrated also in Matthew chapter 5. We see in verses 21 and 22, it says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, or whoever murders shall be subject to judgment. But I, being Jesus, say to you, Anyone who's even angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment. You see, he's raising the bar. He's setting a new, enhanced, higher standard for how we relate with one another in the kingdom of God. Moving forward into verse 27, it says, You've heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman intending to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. He's raising the bar. He's taking it up a few notches. And then in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And pray for those that persecute you. Instead of do not sin, which is some of the older translations or more simplified ones, Jesus is saying, don't do anything that would compromise the faith of another believer. Nothing. Don't cause a compromise in the faith of another believer, whether it's temptation that leads to sin or false teaching that will distort their belief or understanding of who God is for them and for the world. In fact, Jesus says this offense is so serious that it's better to drown than to commit it. It's better to drown. It's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That's pretty vivid imagery, isn't it? A millstone. Do you guys know what a millstone is? It's literally this huge stone, and here it's translated to the millstone of a donkey, and we have a picture of this. Because I just don't know how to explain that to you in any short time. But a donkey would be the driving power behind moving this millstone around, grinding grains or whatever they would put in it. So that big thing that's rolling around on grain, Jesus says, hey, it's better to put that around your neck and be thrown into the sea, into the deep water, than to cause one who believes in me to compromise their faith or to sin. That's a pretty big deal. And if I'm reading this 
You can take the picture down now. It's a cute donkey. I don't want you guys to be distracted. You can read this, and you can just be like, oh, my goodness, that's really harsh. That doesn't sound like the loving Jesus that I've heard of. Oh, my gosh, that's, that's really harsh. And we can just pass over because we have this idea of who we like Jesus to be. We like the, the white glowing Jesus in the robes that hangs on the cathedrals, right? Like that's, we just want this really fantasized idea of Jesus. But the reality is, is he has come to preach citizenship of a different kind of kingdom. And this different kingdom requires a different way of life. And he's trying to adjust their paradigm and their standards to that. He's trying to help them adjust And then Jesus pivots and he applies this phrase, causing to stumble to not just other believers, but also to oneself. And he says, this that I'm telling you about how you interact with others and what you cause them to do, well, same for you. Same for you. And the main point of these verses is that it is so important to enter into eternal life or life with Jesus that radical means must be taken to remove what can prevent it. It is so important to Jesus that you would spend eternity with him that he is saying this requires radical means to prevent further separation from you and I. I've come to the world to restore your relationship with your creator, with your heavenly father, and anything that would get in the way of that needs eradicated. He's trying to communicate that to his followers. I bet you can think of times in your own life where radical means are needed to see something flourish. Radical means to see something flourish or to become what it was intended or designed to become. An example of this that I can remember really vividly, which is crazy because I was in the third grade, is I was living with my parents, as a lot of third graders do, and we moved into this new place, and it was 20 acres that just hadn't been touched, manicured, mowed, landscaped, anything for, it looked like a decade. It was just wild and overgrown. And we showed up and we're like, man, I can't even go out there and play. There's got to be stuff hiding out there that wants to hurt me as a kid, as a third grader. And my dad looks at it and he's like, this is amazing. Because see, he was into landscaping. He was into trimming things down and shaping things to, to flourish in the way that they were supposed to be. And I can remember specifically two plants that my dad was like, these are like prized plants right here. I'm like, it's an overgrown, ugly apple tree and a rhododendron. I can go out in the forest and see rhododendrons. Why is this so special to you? But he took time with these two specific plants, and he he trimmed them back to where it just looked like twigs sticking out of the ground, literally like nothing left, right? Just pruned them down to nearly nothing. And for two years, we'd go out there and be like, hey, dad, you said there's going to be apples on that tree. Yeah, right. I don't even know if that thing's still alive, right? And he'd still faithfully water it, and he'd go out there, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, it's doing just what I wanted. And as a third grader, I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? And then this road to dinner, and I was like, why don't we just go buy a new one? He's like, no, because this one, it's been here a while. It's well-rooted. It's established. It just needs some help. It just needs some help. And I called him the butcher, like, for, for years because he just butchered these things. But if you were to go there today, the picture of what my dad saw in those plants, I won't tell you how many years ago, but it was more than I can count right now, those plants look like they did in his mind then. 
flourishing apple tree that umbrellas and provides shade over this little bench and a nice little gravel sitting area. He's retired, so he has nothing to do but just make all these little pretty places in his yard. And these rhododendrons that, that they're flourishing, they get these big, gorgeous blooms, and he trims them back and still cares for them, but he hasn't had to butcher them since that time. There was a radical thing that needed to happen to those specific plants so that they could flourish and become what they were designed to be. And it took some time because they got brought so far back that it looked like someone had just taken a piece of firewood, stuck it in the ground, be like, you like my apple tree? Like, that's what it looked like. And now it's just this amazing tree. And that is similar here. Jesus is saying, hey, I've created you for great things. I have huge plans for you and for this world, but I am committed to taking drastic measures to remove anything that would keep you from spending eternity with me. And we can look at that and be like, man, that's kind of mean. That would really hurt. But it is such an expression of love that he would take the time and care to, to shape you and mold you into that and to nurture you into flourishing and becoming what he has designed and planned for you. Sometimes radical means are needed to see something flourish or to become what it was intended to become. And then we see this identification here of sin or stumbling with specific body parts. Did you ever think of it that way, or did you think, ah, oh, he's just trying to get his point across? Yeah, I get it. Hands, feet, eyes, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, whatever. Like, I, I get it. There's, there's body parts here. But it's meant to encompass all the areas of our life. So he's not just saying, hey, whatever you do in public that causes people to stumble, remove that. He's not just saying whatever happens behind closed doors that causes you to stumble or be separated from others, remove that. He's encompassing multiple areas of life. Like the hand likely signifies whatever is done, whatever you do with your hands that might cause someone to stumble. Or the feet, wherever you may go, wherever you may go, and the eye, whatever one sees, whatever you may see, look at, gaze upon, whether lustfully or wantingly, like, no, all of those things are bad. And these verses are graphic and shocking, right? He's like, it's better to go maimed into heaven and be with me than to go into hell. And so it's very graphic, but it is hyperbolic. It is hyperbolic. Jesus is not literally prescribing the removal of your body parts. He's not literally saying no, like, we're going to set up a tent. We're going to have a medical mission. And if you're like looking at bad stuff, we're going to pluck one of those puppies out. We're here to help you and serve you. Like that's, that's not what he's saying. But he is demanding the cessation or elimination of the sinful activities associated with those members of the body. Eliminating, ceasing them. Are you stumbling in the way of the Lord with stealing your, your hand? Are you venturing into places that are leading you or others to sin? Are your feet doing it? Are you looking at stuff on your computer or your phone or in your neighborhood that lead you to sin? He's saying, stop. Enough. Enough. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. There is something significant at stake, and that is life with him and life to the fullest. 
In fact, it's so important that you stop that Jesus uses the illustration of removing things from your body that cause you or allow these stumblings because it's better to be without them and be with him than to face judgment as an untransformed, unchanged person. It's better than being unchanged and untransformed and facing judgment. Radical spiritual surgery is demanded because nothing less is at stake than life, eternal life, and life to the fullest. It requires spiritual surgery. You see, living in the kingdom of God compels its citizens to cease what would keep oneself or others from being good citizens. It compels us to live that way. It compels us to change our, our behaviors, the way in which we interact with the world around us and the people around us and causing people to stumble or not be good citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, multiple times there, it talks about it's better to lose that hand or be maimed than to be thrown into hell, right? And, and for some of us that may have grown up in the church or maybe have grown up in a a church that, that discusses these things a little differently, um, we need to talk about this word hell here. We need to talk about this. We need to unpack what Jesus is trying to illustrate, what he's trying to communicate to these people. Now, first of all, the word here in the Greek is Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew word Gehenom or Valley of Hinnom. It's literally referring to a specific valley that still exists today. I was there two years ago. Take my word for it. It looks a little different but it's still there. It's a literal valley that lies on the southern side of the city of Jerusalem, and it was used as the city's garbage dump. This valley was used as the city's garbage dump. However, in some of the darker times of the city, this was used as a site for human sacrifice to the pagan god Molech and a dreadful practice that King Josiah eventually put to a stop in the book of 2 Kings. This was a place where human excrement and rubbish, including animal carcasses, were disposed of and burned. Doesn't sound like a, a pleasant place to be, right? And it, it's graphic because Jesus is trying to illustrate the severity of this. These things were disposed of and burned here. And it was known that the fires of Gehenna never went out. It was just always burning Rubbish and excrement and animal carcasses and whatever else was a dominant cultural thing that was happening at the time, that was an epicenter for a lot of those things. So in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is often referred to as the intertestamental period, the name Gehenna, or this place, came to be used to symbolically represent what people understood to be the place of divine punishment. So now we see what it was, and then over time, what people were using this reference to illustrate, a place of divine punishment. In other words, Jesus is using a very tangible, experiential, and easily grasped place as he was teaching to illustrate the, de the dreadful nature of failing to cease actions in one's life that would cause others or yourself to live in a way that does not indicate a citizen of the kingdom of God. He's making it very real. He's saying, yeah, yo, that place over there, you remember the history of that? Yeah, like, is that where you want to be? Like, what that represents, what that is like, that is the alternative here. <clears throat> you see, this valley 
had a sickening past. It was a place where grotesque and adulterous idolatry had occurred, all the way to sacrificing their own children at a point of the history of this city. There's a book called The Skeleton in God's Closet, or Skeletons in God's Closet, by Joshua Ryan Butler. And in that, he refers to, he says, the Valley of Hinnom, later known as Gehenna, was the cheap hotel outside the city where Israel cheated on God with other lovers. It was the cheap hotel outside the city where Israel cheated on God with other lovers. <clears throat> it was a place where the things that took God's place in their life were exemplified, manifested in the way in which they interacted with this place, this rubbish heap, rubbish heap this garbage dump, this place of sacrificing other things. Pastor Seth Trimmer, who some of you may know, says this when he's talking about Gehenna. He says, Gehenna shows us that the origins of hell were not God's creation, but ours. Humans started the fires of Gehenna, and this fire is metaphorically represented all over the world in all kinds of ways. So the big question isn't about God sending people to hell, but evicting hell from his good world. And all those that refuse forgiveness and healing that God offers to escape this eviction will continue on being destroyed by the flames that are started to destroy God. You see, this wasn't some place or some, some state that God just put into place as like, ah, you go there, I'm mad at you. But it was a human creation that was meant to burn away the presence and power of God in this world by human intervention. And really what God's saying is we have an opportunity to evict that instead of go into that. And I think that's great news. So these people would understand that if some, there was something that they may be doing that was causing others or themselves to be put in that place, to be associated with this Gehenna, it would be much better to have that thing removed, totally evicted from your life, than to spend eternity in that kind of circumstances. They wanted to avoid that outcome at all costs. Then in verse 48, we see an allusion to Isaiah chapter 66 in verse 24, where it says, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This simply just speaks to the eternal punishment of those who have rebelled against God. It's going back to the prophet Isaiah as he's speaking about these things. Now, as you may have noticed, we read verses 42 through 50, right? But if you're reading along in your Bible, or I don't know how it illustrated on the screen, but there's a couple verses missing there. If you're tracking along with verse numbers, it just shows like bracketed 44, but no verse, and a bracketed 46, but no verse. And when you're reading through the scriptures and you see those things, it should cause you to be like, oh, what's going on there? There seems to be a verse missing, right? Why? And simply what happened is verses 46 and 48 in some modern transcripts is just, or 44 and 46 is simply verse 48 just plugged in to create some parallelism. But in the most significant manuscripts that we have from history, that actually wasn't there. So a lot of theologians believe that some of the translators just simply added that in to associate that verse with each of the body parts and each of those things to create parallelism. So if you're reading through a study Bible that gives you some notes, it'll say, oh, 44 is actually just 48 repeated. 46 is the same as verse 48 repeated. And it's just a literary function to try to create parallelism. But in the, the most uh, trusted manuscripts, it actually wasn't like that. So that's why we didn't read it that way. So Jesus, as he often does when teaching his followers, was connecting his message 
the message of the kingdom of God to the teaching that would have been a part of their lives from the time they were born in the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah. He was connecting it, saying, hey, this kingdom of God thing I'm preaching isn't some separate thing that you've never heard about. It's actually fulfillment of what you've been anticipating. And in his teaching, he continues to connect those dots. Now, the disciples don't always get it as we're reading, right? They, they're a little dense. <laughs> they're, not, they're not hearing that. They're not seeing that. But he continues in a loving way to draw those correlations or connections for them. Then Jesus launches into this two-verse conclusion of his teaching and of this chapter. And it begs the question right away in verse 49, what the heck does it mean when it says everyone will be salted with fire? Did you guys wonder that as you're reading through it? What? Everyone will be salted with fire. For me, I read it and it says everyone. And at least in my book, I'm one of everyone, right? Like, well, I'm, I'm one of those everyone's. And so this applies to me. I want to know what the heck it's saying. What does it mean? This is important to me because it's everyone. And so this phrase is actually a reading or combination of the best manuscript evidence that we have, which gives us two readings or interpretations. And bear with me, this, this, can, this is one of those little nerdy parts, but I'm just hoping that you can see kind of how some of these, these verses are put together. And the two manuscript readings we get is that every sacrifice will be salted with salt, and everyone will be salted with fire, and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. So going back to the early manuscripts, that is what the translators are trying to put into our language for us to understand. And then it's also combined with Leviticus 2.13 that is being alluded to here, which says, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. And they settled in the English language with the translation of everyone will be salted with fire. Now, I don't translate the Bible. I don't speak Greek or Hebrew. I just have computer programs that do it for me. So I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you and make arguments for why they came up with that. But I read multiple translations from the NASB to the NIV to the ESV, and they all said it the same way. So people way smarter than me have agreed upon this as a valid translation. So we have to ask, even though it may seem complicated, maybe some of us that like to nerd out on language are like, gosh, but why is that what they came up with? We still have to ask the question that actually matters to us right now. What does this mean for us? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? And the most agreed upon interpretation sees in the fire the trials and persecution of the disciples of Jesus. The previous verses relate to the dedication to God of the various members of the body, the hand, the foot, the eye. And these must be sacrificed if need be to enter the kingdom of God. Here, it is communicating this through the lens of a total self, the person being one holistic person. It's not just like, oh, your thought life or what you do physically or your spiritual life. It's like, no, the person. Every disciple is supposed to be a total sacrifice to God. It's mentioned in Romans 12.1. And as salt always accompanied the temple sacrifices, so fire, which is persecutions, trials, and suffering, will accompany the true disciples' sacrifice. This fire of purification will accompany the sacrifices of the disciple. 
Now, this interpretation would seem the most likely out of the, the few that we see in different commentaries, and it would have a special meaning for Mark's persecuted church, the people that he is writing this for, the people that this is speaking to. It helped them understand that the purifying fires of persecution were not to be thought of as foreign or an anomaly or an indicator that you are broken or being judged, but this was just a part of their vocation as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and that everyone would be salted with fire, preserved with the purifying fire. This was just part of following Jesus. And that's kind of a, a weighty thing to grasp. It's a weighty thing to be like, yeah, cool, I'm on board with that. But it's not really something that says, hey, if you're willing, it says, no, if, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, this is just how it goes. This isn't foreign. This isn't anomaly. This isn't something just like, hey, you screwed up, so you're going to go through some trials and persecutions. It's saying this is the lifestyle, the way of the disciple living in a broken world, trying to bring redemption and healing to everything in it is going to come along with some trials and persecution. Then we finish up this chapter in the book of Mark with verse 50 and more talk about salt. What's with this fascination with salt? However, in this verse, we have to shift our mindsets a little bit because salt here needs to be understood in a domestic setting or a scientific setting, not a spiritual or religious setting like we were talking about before with the correlation to the sacrifice in and, and Leviticus. You see, salt played a very important role in the ancient world. The rabbis actually considered it a necessity for life. They declared the world cannot survive without salt. Hopefully they said and God. But the world cannot survive without salt. Salt was used for many purposes as it is today, including favoring, flavoring, favoring, flavoring, a cleansing agent and a preservative to keep food from spoiling. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about salt losing its saltiness? You ever wonder that? Salt losing its saltiness. Like, we can think of it like, oh yeah, don't lose your flavor. Don't lose your ability to preserve. Don't lose your cleansing agent and the, the ability you have to bring cleansing to the earth, right? We can think of all these things like, oh yeah, that feels good. I'm good with that. Let's move on now. But what does it actually, like, Jesus isn't just talking about this in like a ethereal, like, oh, isn't that a beautiful illustration of salt? Like, there is something scientific, something very literal about this that he's trying to communicate. So, sodium chloride, which is table salt, is a stable compound and cannot actually lose its saltiness. Like just sodium chloride by itself can't lose its saltiness. It can't. But Jesus here is referring to the kind of salt found in the Dead Sea. You see, this is a regional geographic correlation that he's drawing. This is what they would have known of as salt, which is a mixture of sodium chloride and other compounds. So when the water would evaporate from this mixture, which often happened around the outsides, the shores of the Dead Sea, the sodium chloride crystallizes first, and then it might be harvested. It would be removed as it crystallized. And then what is left is gypsum and other impurities. Therefore, the salt had what? Lost its saltiness. Because the kind of salt that they were used to, that they would harvest out of the Dead Sea, that table salt would crystallize first and they would remove it, but this was still salt water. It was still referred to as salt because it was all in the same Dead Sea, but this salt had lost its saltiness. 
And Jesus is warning his disciples here not to lose that characteristic in them that brings life to the world and prevents its decay. There's something special that makes you salty. There's something special about you. Those who would believe in me, follow me, walk in my way, there's a characteristic that differentiates you. Don't lose it, he's saying. But what is that characteristic which, if lost, will make the disciples of Jesus worthless? What is that characteristic? Now you need to listen up here, because if you're a Jesus follower yourself, this isn't something we get to just stand here 2,000 years later and be like, oh yeah, this is good teaching for those disciples. (laughs) Because it's also good teaching for us disciples. It's not just about those guys that we read like, man, they're so dense. How do they not get that? Jesus is right there with them. Well, it's because you have all the rest of the story that you've read already. So let's not get too pious about our understanding of what Jesus is teaching. This applies to us. So what characteristic, if lost in your life, will result in you losing your saltiness? Losing the very characteristic that sets you apart from the rest of the world, that sets you apart as a citizen of a different kingdom. What is it? It is the disciples' spirit of devotion and self-sacrifice to Jesus and his gospel that makes them salty. Their devotion and self-sacrifice to Jesus and his gospel. You are not signing up to being salted with fire if you're not clear on what's at stake. You don't just sit there and you go to like a a student job fair, right? And you're walking through, oh, what kind of work-study jobs can I find? And you come up to the table that says, hey, this is the salted with fire table. And you're like, oh, that sounds fun. I'm going to sign, I want that work-study. I want that, like that's not, it's not something you pick off a menu. It's something you say, yes, I accept that because I am clear about what is at stake, what God's calling me to do, what he wants to do in this earth, and I'm honored to be a part of it. And that's, if that's one of the circumstances that accompanies it, occasionally so be it, because I know that I stand for truth and what God is doing in this, and it's worth it. But you don't just go on a date night and you're like, oh, I love this restaurant. Eh, oh, some salted with fire. Like, you, you don't just pick that voluntarily. You get the cause. You get what is happening. If you're not clear as to the current state of affairs in your world and your heart, and you're not encouraged by the notion of self-sacrifice and becoming purified by fire, when you're fully devoted follower of Jesus, a follower of him, when you're devoted to the things he cares about, you are different. You are set apart. You are salty. You're salty. It makes you different. And he goes forward and he says, have salt. Therefore, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. I don't know about you guys, but there's nothing like these last five years in our kind of socio-political atmosphere to make me just long for being at peace with one another. You guys ever just think about that? Gosh, what would it be like if we could all just be at peace with one another? If I could have an open dialogue with somebody that may view things a little differently than me and we still love each other because we are like bonded together on something bigger. And one of the great honors of pastoring this church is this is a place where that actually exists and I'm grateful for that. But that's not necessarily the case in the place that God has planted us where we are rooted. But I believe that Grace City, Eugene, and I believe that all Grace Cities are an example of this in the communities that they are planted in. 
They have this salt of self-sacrificial giving of oneself that will result in a spirit of peace and unity among believers where devotion to one another takes precedence over self-interest. I believe that this community, as imperfect as you know, some of us and your leader may be, <clears throat> is a representation of what it looks like to put others before yourself. And I believe that we operate in that way because we understand that Christ first died for us so that we could live that way. What if the rest of the world got that? What if? What if God wanted you to be a part of the rest of the world getting that? Now, if you're here on a regular basis, that should be no new news to you. It's going to come out every week that I'm up here. God has called you to be a part of bringing that characteristic into a broken world that so desperately needs it. When you step into a room, a home, a place of business where self-sacrifice and devotion are central to the culture and lifestyle there, it's palpable, it's noticeable, it's like a tangible thing in the atmosphere of, of a home or a church or a place of business. Isn't, have you guys experienced that? We just walk into a place and you're like, gosh, there's something special here. And if you're following Jesus, you know what it is. You know what it is. You know what it is. It's different. And we are called to never lose that special circumstance, that special characteristic that sets apart the citizen of the kingdom of God, that spirit of devotion and self-sacrifice to Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're called to never lose that. It may cost you sleep. It may cost you money, comfort, time. It may cost you some unhealthy relationships, some things, some vacation time, but every time you prioritize your life to live in this way, you give the world and those around you, your kids, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, a glimpse of heaven on earth. That's what you give them, a glimpse of heaven on earth. You give them an experience of the kingdom of God intersecting with a broken world, seeking to bring redemption and wholeness back. Worship team, you can come back up. When you do that, you give them hope. Hope in something more than what is currently our reality. Hope in peace and unity in their community, in their family, in their world. Hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? I can think of many situations and times in, in my personal life where all I had to get me through, whether it's relational struggles, leadership struggles, whatever it was, was a hope that Jesus was going to do what he said he was going to do, and he was going to build his church. And as I continually submitted to him, caring for others more than myself, loving my enemies, praying for those that would persecute me, as long as I continued in that, God was going to take care of it. He was going to take care of me. He was going to take care of my family. He was going to take care of this church. And in the times when that's all I had, I got to see God move in a powerful way. All I had was hope in Jesus doing what he said he was going to do. And family, that's all I needed. 
Some of you are in here today and you're in a similar place. You're like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I'm feeling distant from God. I'm feeling brokenness in my marriage. I'm feeling like I'm unworthy of the love of God. I'm feeling the weight of all of the things going on in this world. And all I have is hope that Jesus is going to come back and do something about it. And that's all you need. And it can sound so fickle and so dismissive, like, oh yeah, all I need is what Jesus is going to do. But that's absolutely the thing that is going to bring restoration and healing and redemption to this world. As awesome as you all are, and as much as I like to spend time with you, you're not awesome enough to heal the brokenness that exists all around us. But as all of us function together in unity and in a spirit of devotion and self-sacrifice, and care about others more than ourselves and perpetuate these little glimpses of the kingdom of God here on earth as in heaven, we inject hope into this world. And that, my friends, is what's gonna bring change. That's what's gonna bring change. It's active, it's intentional, and it's hopeful. And that's what we are called to be. So my prayer for us is that we will stay salty living as fully devoted, fully devoted followers of Jesus, not, at a, not afraid of identifying with Jesus in any given moment through self-sacrifice and carrying the only message that truly brings hope to our world and all the nations. And that's of what Jesus, or that's of Jesus doing what he said he's gonna do, bringing restoration and healing and wholeness to a broken place that he has planted us, rooted us, so that we can be his ambassadors in the darkness. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for each person in this room. I thank you that no matter what personal circumstances are being walked through right now, that we none of us are walking through that alone, and I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your healing power. I thank you for the hope that you bring as we believe in the things that maybe we don't get to see yet, but we get glimpses of from every, every now and then from time to time, that we get glimpses of you doing amazing things. God, would you help us to faithfully continue to be ambassadors of hope, restoration, unity, and peace in this world you've placed us in. We thank you for this time today, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Would you stand as we close in worship?